In this episode, I have the pleasure to introduce Keith Hayes. He hails from the U.S., but currently lives in Barcelona and has for the past 20 years with his wife and family. He is somewhat of a serial entrepreneur in the clean tech space. He's now on his second major company, Bluefield Research, which looks into water, water scarcity, water quality, and how climate change is impacting the water around the world. Previously, he developed a renewable energy startup company dealing mostly with data analytics with solar, wind, geothermal, storage, and other technologies, which was bought by IHS Emerging Energy Research, and he then worked for them for about four years. As our first entrepreneur in this season, it's really exciting to get some ideas about how one might get into the climate and clean tech space without necessarily going through academia or as a policymaker, politician, or researcher. So I'm very happy to bring Keith onto the show, and he has a lot of great ideas. He's very enthusiastic, and I hope that you'll enjoy the interview as much as I did. Keith Hayes, uh, welcome to the show. Just jump right into it. Explain what you did when you were younger. What got you interested in the clean tech, renewables, and now water? Thanks, Kyle, and thanks a lot for having me on the show. It's exciting. I think it's great to get a chance to tell my story. I am originally from the New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York tri-state area, and I've been going out to Montauk thereabouts since I was growing up. I was used to being outdoors and around water and sailing, and I think that you know I wasn't an, an environmental studies major per se when I went to college. I went to school at Columbia, New York City, but I think around that time, you know, I remember when Al Gore did Inconvenient Truth and the first sort of climate change push after the Kyoto Protocol kind of sputtered. And this was clearly something that was very important happening globally, as we have more globalization, more interconnectedness through technology, and that should be doing good for the environment. As I aged in my career, I started out working in the telecoms industry, then helped start a market insight company focused on renewable energy. And I think it was when I got involved in basically helping clients understand how energy markets were moving towards clean tech that I realized, you know, there was something important happening and was really starting to make progress, both in terms of governments starting to develop policies that would regulate carbon emissions more strictly. Also, a lot of technology becoming cost competitive, a lot of consumers seeing the value in that and, and willing to spend on technologies and, and more on renewable energy. And I think that's what got me into it. That was, this was a company we, we built from 2003 to 2010 called Emerging Energy Research. Why don't you unpack that for a bit? There are some listeners out there that I think are keen on starting a company in this space and would like to know sort of how to begin and how to scale that up and out. And it's, it's a quite exciting space to work in. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, everybody kind of brings their own CV to the table, so to speak, in looking at environmental issues. I mean, from my perspective, I had studied English literature in college, of all things, and then I did a business degree and actually moved to Spain, where I studied abroad, and then I've been living in Barcelona for about the past 20 years. You know, I think from the entrepreneurial perspective, what was interesting is seeing how fragmented and discombobulated it is sometimes to understand very local environmental issues. And so with me and two partners in Boston, we saw an opportunity to collect data on what was happening in building renewable energy infrastructure. And why infrastructure? Well, because it seemed like something that uh, would really make an impact uh, in terms of shifting the way that the, especially the power sector works. We saw that there was a lot of data that was very disaggregated out there. So when companies wanted to develop businesses and understand how to grow and who are their competitors, there was a void of information. So myself and, and two other entrepreneurs, we put together a business plan and, and launched a company which primarily was focusing on wind energy and, and then solar energy. And then out of that grew other technologies. Geothermal and, and sorts. Yeah. Now, now, quickly, what do you mean by um, infrastructure for renewables? Because some people have an idea that renewables are just panels on top of my roof, my home. Other people have an idea of big wind farms. And so there's all this in between. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we're focused more on the large scale centralized infrastructure. So we're talking very large wind farms, you know, 500 megawatts or greater, or we would be talking about uh, centralized solar thermal power plants, which would be, you know, maybe up to a gigawatt. I mean, at first we started looking at what is that large scale technology? What are the plants you got to build out that could potentially compete or somehow reduce the reliance on nuclear and gas fired plants and coal fired plants? Yeah. So we started looking at that centralized stuff. And then we started looking more at the distributed solar PV on rooftops and things like that. Right. And so you looked at, I'm sure, the CSP concentrated solar power and Spain is somewhat of a pioneer in this area, CSP as well as wind. So did that help that you were located there or were you back and forth during this time? Yeah, no, it did. I mean, I actually ended up here by happenstance because I, I came to Spain to learn the language. It is the second biggest language in the States and it seemed useful. Just kind of fell in love with the country and I was working in telecoms when we started working on this business plan for renewable energy. This was in 2003. And at that point, I hadn't quite realized yet how far along Spain had come because Germany at that point was the hub for the wind energy industry. They had built, they had started building wind turbines all over the Netherlands and, and Germany, even though there isn't that much wind there. And then they started building it out in Spain. But really what was the game changer was around 2007, 2008, when the government started subsidizing solar PV panels. There were some very generous incentives for about three or four years that fueled the build out of thousands and thousands of solar PV plants around the country. And I'm talking big ones, not smaller rooftop ones. And, and just explain briefly, what were these subsidies? They were, and uh, you know, for those who have looked at renewable energy policy and incentives, these were called feed-in tariffs, where you basically guarantee an offtake price for the producer of the power, yeah? So 
for solar power at that time, if it was, I think, less than a megawatt, it was about 22 euro cents per kilowatt hour, which was like three times what the pool price was. And then you had wind power also had a feed-in tariff incentive. So there was a guaranteed price, and there was a very clear workable business model where you could get project finance at that time. This is pre-Lehman Brothers when there was a lot of relatively cheap debt out there that and then you had a guaranteed cash flow from these projects based on these government incentives so it was a it was a very interesting business model and a lot of people made a lot of money out of it right and then and then they were guaranteed over a certain number of years that feed in tariff yeah. or that was every couple of years they had to renew that yeah, so it was indexed. It was an indexed tariff that was modified every year, year and a half or so. But the, the, the tariff was pretty much guaranteed for 10 to 12 years. But that all changed... Oh, it did. I mean, after that, the risk premium for Spain and all over the European Union went way up. So the cost of capital went way up and credit markets pretty much froze up. So there was no more project finance anymore. And the government, uh, because of the financial crash over here, it was different. It wasn't subprime mortgages, but it was predatory lending and very loose approval of mortgages on not quite under the same financial structure as in the States, but it did lead to the government having to cut a lot of things and enter an austerity period, as we all know about, and that included cutting a lot of incentives to renewable energy. Right. You developed uh, quite an expertise in this area. That was helped by living being in Spain. And then, so now fast forward, 2003, four, five, six, seven, your company's now four or five years old. And then what were you thinking at that point? Yeah. So at that point, this was around 2008, 2009. I mean, we were obviously concerned, right? Because a lot of renewable energy infrastructure was being built out by companies that were heavily involved in the financial sector that had gotten wrapped up in some of the subprime mortgage challenges and the the financial market pretty much cratered, right? So we didn't really see that happen until, until about 2010, 2011. We had a growth plan where we were going to build out more of a data platform for our company. We were going to hire some more folks. And then we were approached by a much larger information services company at the time. And they liked our growth plan. We realized that it was going to be pretty difficult to scale. I mean, the company was about 40 people at the time, and we were pretty much doubling in revenue each year. But it seemed like to make it to the next level, either we're going to have to bring in some financing, which at the time was not a great idea, or we could take this, this opportunity to join a larger firm. So we, we sold the company in 2010. That was Emerging Energy okay. Research. And then I worked at IHS, which was the owner of Emerging Energy Research, for about three years before starting a new company seven years ago called Bluefield Research. And that's dedicated to the water sector, and that's what I'm doing now. Okay, great. So you had a nice exit out of the first company. You stuck with them for about a year thereafter. And then you're thinking, okay, I want to build another company, stay in this sort of related to climate change area, environmental policy area, and you jump into water. Did that come from any kind of spark, something you read, a place that you visited, or someone you spoke to? Yeah, well, but yeah, I mean, water even came up looking at 
you look at the power sector with renewable energy and one of the huge issues like with like a nuclear power plant is how much water they use. I think the power sector in the US is accounts for like 45% of all freshwater use. It's crazy. I mean, in most countries it's agriculture, but in the US, the power sector sucks up a massive amount of water and it has to do with the amount of coal, gas, and nuclear plants that are functioning in the States. So this is something that came up before. And also even with those uh, concentrated solar power plants, they need tons of water as well. And so we actually even had clients, like wind turbine clients who said, look, we need you to write a paper that shows that wind turbines use way less water than nuclear plants because we're trying to get more support from the government. So the water thing was coming up for years. And it seemed at the time that the water infrastructure industry was ripe for change, just like renewable energy in the sense that there is new technology out there to filter water, to produce water by desalinating it, to clean it for wastewater treatment. And and then also, you know, there is greater environmental regulation coming into play. Maybe not so much in the in the US right now, but in other parts of the world, you know, they're discovering all the time all kinds of contaminants in the water, you know, as climate change worsens, which we're seeing all over the place now, whether it's, you know, chunks of our Antarctica falling into the sea or droughts or it's snowing in Iraq. You know, it's all kinds of crazy stuff is happening now. Yeah. Water is obviously a key barometer in terms of what is happening. I mean, the, the amount of drought and flooding we're seeing on unprecedented levels almost every other year now, right? You're hearing it's been the worst drought ever in California or Australia is on fire because of its drought or the floods that came with Hurricane Harvey hitting Houston. I mean, it's just crazy how much the lack of or oversupply of water is is showing up in with climate change, right? So we we thought right. that, you know, there's there's obviously again, there's a big infrastructure issue here in terms of building out more treatment plants, getting plants to filter out more contaminants, to be more efficient in the way we run water infrastructure because you know, in most cases, like a municipality leaks between 20 and 30% of its water running through its pipes that goes to its customers. So, you know, there are parallels with renewable energy in that there's technology out there, there's some policy change. But, you know, I think what we've realized, because this business is is moving more slowly, I would say, than renewable energy is that the water sector is, moves pretty slow because it is so fundamental it's an essential service that is provided it's it's, it's mostly it's public in it's most public and, yeah exactly exactly you know they're not yeah. they're not out to buy the latest iphone you know these guys are they just want stuff that works and there's no limiting risk as much as possible and make sure the phone doesn't ring and nothing goes wrong <laughs> so right. it's not the sexiest for innovation like doing wind turbines or solar panels or working in telecoms like i did before but I have to say, at a time like this, where we're all hunkered down in our houses and everything that is non-essential is kind of getting stripped away, whether it's, you know, going on a trip somewhere or buying something at an electronic, whatever, it's like the one or two things you must have are like water and power. And it makes me think that, you know, how important it is that water infrastructure does work and hopefully we're we're helping companies and municipalities figure that out 
I'd like to get into, there's a lot of developing countries. I don't know how much work you've done there, but there have been basically governments, regimes been brought down about water and the quality of water. Well, even in the U.S., which is not a developing country, they had a, a big problem there in Flint. So could you maybe speak to some sort of some of our audience out there that are involved or come from developing countries? And, and could you speak towards that as 70% of the world? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's huge. I mean... There's like over a billion people that don't have access to running clean drinking water, right? So it actually, it really is a, a luxury in many places to have tap water that is drinkable at a pressure that, you know, and it's available 24-7. Looked a lot globally outside the U.S. in the research that we've done, looking at which people do and don't have water, how how are they trying to develop their infrastructure or not, and it's true. I mean, there's a huge political component to water supply. And I think it was, was it uh, Mark Twain that said that whiskey's for drinking, but water is for fighting over. And I think what he mean by that is, you know, if you don't have water flowing, everything else comes to a grinding halt. You see that everywhere. I mean, water, control of access to water it was weaponized during the uh, some of the wars that happened in Iraq. Uh, you could say that there are cities that have had riots ongoing because of cuts in water supply. I mean, the city of Manila, Philippines, had their water right. system privatized in the late 90s, and they had a shortage of water, and that led to some serious protests. And something I just came across in my own research quite recently was that Turkey had, this brings both of your careers to, to bear, Turkey had built a number of hydroelectric power plants, which effectively cut off a lot of the water supply going into yeah. Syria. And then you had a 10-year drought because of that. And lo and behold, now they have millions of Syrian immigrants that have flooded in. One thing is, you know, but keeping it flowing or not, there's cross-border issues around it. I mean, you hear a lot sort of about water wars and things like that. And it's not necessarily that obvious that it's the main cause of a war, but oftentimes it is underlying that control of the water is, is fundamental for supplying troops to make the war even possible sometimes. And I think it's... Um, it's a hot button issue. When you touch the tariffs for water, I mean, there's a huge debate about how to finance building out more water infrastructure, particularly in developing countries, because a lot of times the systems are in disrepair and it's very touchy to try and increase rates, increase the cost of that water so that the utility can recover its costs and then invest more in the network. Because every time you touch the tariffs, a lot of the, the public can't afford that. So there is that quandary of how do you raise enough funds to, to be able to keep building out the network, and that's where multilateral finance organizations like the, the World Bank have to step in and try and help out to build out some of these projects. What I'd like to do, since you're one of the few entrepreneurs we've had on and we're a little bit more leaning towards academia at the moment, what I'd like to do for the audience is unpack each company from an entrepreneurial standpoint and just kind of describe the process and following your heart, following your passion. Is it that you don't sleep for a few years? All the nuances of actually building a company, especially something that you're passionate yeah. about. You know, the caveat I'll have here is that at the end of the day, I'm sort of, I guess, what you would call a, an information entrepreneur and in that, you know, I'm not necessarily pouring in millions of dollars to construct a specific product. I mean, what we're really selling is the analysis of information to make 
business decisions. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the core of what I did in renewable energy and what I'm doing now in water. So that has its pluses and minuses. The pluses are, you know, the startup costs are relatively low. I mean, if you have an internet connection and a phone and can start calling and assembling data and gathering insights from people in the market uh, and then can start putting together some content, it's uh, there's a relatively low barrier to entry. So it's very important to choose what market you're going for and having a unique perspective on it. You know, how it started in both cases was, you know, we probably spent at least a year kicking around uh, some ideas and a business plan. And I think the the kernel of that, the that plan was understanding, you know, what's missing in the market, right? And just basic questions about, in our case, what are businesses trying, what do they need to know to make better decisions to compete in renewable energy or in the water sector, if we're going for those kinds of clients. Uh, if we're working with a municipal utility, right. it's a it's a different question. Would you go out and ask them, because I've been told by successful entrepreneurs, go out and start interviewing, asking people yeah. directly. A lot of networking, right? A lot of work in your LinkedIn page and going to conferences and trying to set up calls and bouncing ideas off them. And you know, not everybody has a ton of time for people who don't have much to show for it, you know, so you have to have a relatively thick skin, not necessarily being an expert. I mean, I'm not a hydraulic engineer and I'm not an environmental scientist. So I kind of came at this from a business perspective, but that was unique in a way, because to be honest, the water sector is packed with engineers and environmental scientists. And I don't think it's as packed with business and market analysts. So that was where we found a, a niche. Right. That's a good wink to some undergraduate students that might be listening or even master's students that it doesn't really matter. You can do an undergraduate in humanities in some kind of social science and make a big impact in even a field that's so technical. And what about, the, can I just go back to the, the first days of both company? You have a couple spreadsheets, you and your two mates. What was like that first pitch and what was the feeling after you actually got that first deal done? I mean, I remember, well, first of all, you're kind of thinking, we think we know what we're doing, but do they think we know what we're doing? I mean, there's always, there's a lot of self-doubt, right? And there's a lot of, you know, shopping around drafts of your PowerPoints and pining over what your logo looks like and you're in some kind of crappy office space. I mean, I was, I think I was working out of a flat uh, over here in Barcelona, and then we had this kind of shoebox of an office out in, in the outskirts of Boston. You know, you're you're yeah. doing that. And then we managed to, I think it was partly riding on, uh, my one partner's older than, than me. And he had a similar experience in a telecoms company before. He did successfully build and sell a telecoms research company. And so I think he, he helped get us a bit more credibility. But at the end of the day, it was us putting together content and giving a lot of stuff out for free, I would say, for several months before it was time to say, hey, look, we, it was a large, it was a large uh, wind turbine manufacturer who signed up for our annual research service. So we sold them on this idea that, look, we've got this service. We're going to tell you what's going on in the market and we're going to send you all these interesting graphs and data and they they signed up and it was it was huge for us because it was a big time client you know and once you learn that one you start to get a bit more confident yeah. and you learn a lot from your your first clients early on as well 
Did they know they were I the first? I think they did. Or? I think they did. I mean, we, you know, you you try and make yourself look bigger, right? And you you can you can try and pad your website all you want with old companies that you might have worked at or had some sort of, you know. But you have to be careful about that. And you know, we had to be somewhat upfront about that. We obviously sold ourselves very cheap to start out for our our services, knowing that we were just trying to 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 plant a flag. But after that, then it, it got a bit easier in trying to approach similar companies. You know, we were able to to gra- very gradually scale it from there. I think another thing that happens when you start a company is like you definitely definitely have an idea as to what it's going to look like in your business plan, and but things always change. And there were a lot of tweaks and changes we had to make over time. I remember, you know, we thought we were going to be focused a lot more early on on solar and we weren't. I remember we were looking at crazy at the time technologies like wave power, which, you know, has become more competitive now. Geothermal, which has been around for a really long time. We had all these ideas of doing stuff, and then we realized, okay, here are the two or three things that they really want to pay for. Mainly wind, solar, and some of the bioenergy stuff. That's right. That's right. And so that, that would include ethanol fuels and that would also include the Brazilian um, sugar. Well, some of that, but like biogas and like wood pellets go, that you mix with uh, coal, coal firing. Yeah. So you didn't have to do any raises. You just, uh, this is organic growth. We bootstrapped it. So that is unique. I mean, I think that we had a couple of competitors who went out and raised a few million and they built up way quicker than we did like data centers and they had people calling the internet for information on renewable plant installations. We we did it much more organically. I think that we were a bit less of a, a data shop and more sort of a an, an more focused on value added analysis in the, the work we were doing. But that was an option. And yeah. there was a point where we thought about it, you know, especially specifically because, you know, when you start doing like market research, you know, a lot of folks think market research is pretty boring, like you're writing these long reports, but it's it has changed a lot over time. I mean, now everybody wants to see dashboards, and they want to do webinars, and they want it to be interactive. And and so to keep up with that, you it used to be way more expensive to build these data platforms to track all this stuff. And, you know, you didn't necessarily have an algorithm which could scrape the internet and find everything you wanted. So... That was an option that we could have gone for was to raise more money on the data side. But I think we were able to make it work. I think selling more the quality of the analysis rather than the scale and the interface. That, that You just hit on an interesting point because I had toyed around with the idea for a startup doing exactly that, using uh, machine learning and, and AI to scrape for these sorts of data. It was difficult at first because I was pitching that I needed to get money in order to hire a couple computer engineers because I myself am not an expert in a little bit of coding. A quick tidbit, is that a potential avenue and are you looking at that with your present company? An interesting question, just even in the abstract, because the, essentially the question is how much valuable data out there is structured and unstructured? And a lot of data products or a lot of things out there that are designed for like tracking inventory or contact data, everything can be boxed very neatly into forms and maybe you can cull it from a bunch of different websites. But in our case, a lot of times some of the interesting stuff shows up and it's it's all over the place and it's very disaggregated. One example would be, for instance, how much does a municipal water utility spend on software in a year, right? There's a question you'd be like, all right, well, maybe you could write an algorithm 
which would go to every municipal water utilities website and somehow be able to dig out that number. The truth is though, it just doesn't exist. It's all over the place. Sometimes that number shows up in like a docket from like a, the minutes of a meeting they had at a town hall. Sometimes it shows up very neatly in an Excel sheet because the water department is part of this huge city bureaucracy and it's all posted online and it's great and you can just pull it right out of there. And then there's everything in between. I think the challenge is, yeah. and this is for a lot of things, because you know, every, nowadays a lot of folks think that kind of everything's up there on the internet, you just got to dig for it, but there is still a valuable and kind of frustrating that you still need a human to dig this stuff up, but we, we do spend a lot, a lot more time yeah. than we'd probably like to admit scraping and digging and trying to, to find data. Yeah, I mean, it's in a sense, humans have created this disaggregated siloed mess. So it will be nearly yeah. impossible to train an algorithm to sort through it. I mean, you're exactly right. It might be in some Excel document. This might be in some PDF from one meeting that just happened to occur. In some senses, you can't aggregate 10,000 different different sources, right? You can easily train a machine to look at this type of Excel sheet. Yeah. This is where you're going to find it. But when it's not always there, yeah, there's an opening, which is nice. So not everything is going to go to AI just yet. I guess that's a good <laughs> thing to pull out of it. Well, I'm cognizant of your time, so we've got a couple more minutes. The thing I would really like to hone in on is that what kind of advice would you give to a young person trying to get into this field, whether they want to do it as a career or simply want to participate in climate change activities or environmental activities, what have you? And, and then after that, what kind of advice would you have given to yourself? I think obviously it's, you know, find something that you're passionate about because otherwise you get bored of it pretty quickly and you're not going to be liking what you're doing. But I think the other thing is you really need to be able be willing to kind of roll up your sleeves and start out probably pretty small with something very specific, even if, you know, you're coming in and even if you don't know it, you know, I've spent a lot of time recruiting folks from different backgrounds because as you can imagine, Doing market research, you know, we have worked with engineers, we have worked with uh, environmental scientists, we have worked with data scientists, with journalists, with all kinds of folks. And I think at the end of the day, if you want to get into a career, and this, I guess, is kind of for anything, you need to be willing to roll up your sleeves and maybe do some of those not super fun tasks that you thought would be kind of more glamorous getting into the industry. So I guess that's one thing. I mean, the other thing is right. just getting into... I guess the environmental space, if you want to call it that, it does involve patience. And I think looking at things in the broader perspective, because to wrap your head around what's happening with climate change is very huge. I think you need to understand how politics, technology, markets kind of fit together. So, you know, uh, I encourage people with like political science backgrounds to get into the environmental space. I think it's super important that there's a more informed dialogue around that. I think also having some sort of longer term goal as well is is important. You know, if you see yourself being out there doing field work, well, that's one thing that's very different from if you see yourself in an office drafting policy or, you know, and there's different aspects of it. But I, I guess that's kind of the cool thing about environment is that it does impact everything. It impacts industry, leisure, whatever. So there's lots of space there. And I think there's lots of opportunity and I think it's great that people are getting excited about it and realizing that it is more of a career path. Because if you think about 
20 or 30 years ago, maybe getting into the environmental space had a very specific connotation about like, where are you from? What kind of music you like to listen to? You know, how you party and stuff like that. And it's like, no, it's like yeah. everybody can kind of get that focusing on environmental issues is important. Yeah, great. And then the tough question, would you give this similar advice to your 20 year old self? And as well, uh, did you foresee this sort of career? No, I mean, I, I didn't at all, really. I mean, it's been totally an adventure. I mean, if you had asked me, would I even be in Spain 20 years later, when I was in my early 20s in Barcelona, I, I probably said would have said no way, although it seemed like an exciting adventure at the time. But would I give the same advice? I think so. Maybe that's me justifying where I'm sitting here and how I stare into the void. But, uh, you know, I think that's <laughs> the, you spot your opportunities, you find things that you, that get you motivated. And luckily I, I feel like I've been able to make that work. All right, uh, Keith, I know you have a few more calls in Spain. They work later and you have your family to take care of. Please be safe and healthy in this strange time. I really, really appreciate the time you've given us here, and uh, I would love to catch up as soon as we get through this and hopefully in person. Sounds Great. good. Thanks again. That's it for this episode. Hope you can join us next week. A special shout out to our sponsor. This podcast and all episodes have gotten 100% funding from the Dean's Seed Funding for Strategic Initiatives at UCL's Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences. It is co-hosted by UCL's Global Governance Institute and UCL's Anthropology Institute. And a very special thanks to our producer, Tavo Carbone, who has also created the music for this and all episodes. If you're interested in hearing more of Tavo Carbone music, you can find him at tavocarbonemusic.bandcamp.com. If you'd like to reach out to me, ask me any questions, please do email me at k.herman.com at ucl.ac.edu.